Welcome to another episode of Connecting the Dots. I'm Jake Lancaster, an internal medicine physician and the chief medical information officer for the Baptist System. Hey, everybody. I'm H.F. Mason. I'm a general surgeon and chief medical officer at Baptist Memorial Hospital DeSoto. Well, guys, today we are so honored to have Dr. Alan Herline on the on the podcast. Dr. Herline is is not only an old friend and, and colleague, but he is the chief of colon and rectal surgery at Memorial Healthcare System in South Florida. Uh, Alan, man, I'm, I've been so excited all week about having you on the podcast. Tell us a little bit about your role right now and, and what you do. So Memorial Healthcare System is one of the larger public healthcare systems. We operate and run five different hospitals here in the kind of Fort Lauderdale, um, Hollywood, um, if you're familiar with the area, which is a little further south and east or south of um, Fort Lauderdale. Um, the large number of beds um, for each hospital. And um, with that, the hospital started um, basically Memorial Physician Group and started moving toward an employed physician model. Um, it is the most mixed hospital I have ever been in in terms of it is a big mix of community physicians and of employed physicians and the hospital has just done an amazing job of integrating those two and keeping um, really excellent standards for um, for lots of things. We just got recently a meritorious level from um, NISQIP in terms of our surgical site um, morbidities, infections and things like that. Um, and then most significantly, three years ago, we started five years ago, they started GME programs. Three years ago, we started our general surgery um, program. So we are so our first set of residents are coming through. So I my job really um, was to come in and they wanted to move their colorectal program, which had um, been not really established as a program. They had individual providers doing things, but not really with a program and moving forward um, to make an impact on the system. And so that that's really what I'm here doing. And, and for our listeners, I'm going to give a little little backstory. Um, I first met Dr. Herline or Alan back in 1994. Uh, I, was, <laughs> yes. I was a second year resident at, at Vanderbilt and Alan came in as an intern. And uh, just to give a, a little bit of background, Alan is a uh, has his degree in bi what is biomechanical engineering, biomedical and electrical, yeah, biomedical and electrical engineering from Vanderbilt uh, actually was a punter for the Vanderbilt football team and uh, got drafted by the New England Patriots and uh, then decided to go back to medical school. And, and I just have to say, Alan, and uh, not to blow smoke, but uh, you were one of the best residents that we ever had. And I was t I was talking to Jake earlier. Um, you were one of those residents that when, you, you know, from day one, you just kind of knew what to do and you never had to, you know, you told you would tell Alan to get something done and it got done. But one of the things, and then after you went and did your fellowship at the Leahy Clinic and came back to Vanderbilt and started practicing, uh, you actually helped, you and Paul Wise helped me a lot with some of my advanced rectal cancers that I would send. And I remember, you know, as we talk about process improvement and continuous improvement, you, you talked about, you know, the pathways that you guys had created in colorectal surgery. And, and you guys started doing that before it was really a thing to do and, and tell it tell us a little bit about that sure that well first of all thanks for the kind words and, and back at it it was wonderful 
um, getting to work with UHF and I have nothing but fond memories. And actually some of my favorite phone calls were from not just HF, but particularly from HF where they would have patients and they'd be like, hey, well, what should I do here? And I'm a big believer. Um, we all get good at what we do a lot of. And if it's, if this is all I'm doing, it's not because I'm somehow technically gifted or whatever. It's, it's just what I do every day. So I get much better at it. When, when I got up to Leahy Clinic, um, I was shocked by two things because HF can tell you, we, while we were at Vanderbilt as residents, we really felt like we did a good job taking care of colorectal disease. I think that's a fair statement in an HF. Dr. Sharp sure, did a lot sure. of it. We had um, Vernon Reynolds doing some stuff. We had, I mean, so we felt like, hey, we knew how to do this. And no other resident had ever gone to do a colorectal fellowship from Vanderbilt because if you mentioned going to do a colorectal fellowship, you were basically told, well, why would you do that? That's a waste of time. We already trained you how to do that. Mm-hmm. And actually, Lester Williams, who was over our St. Thomas Hospital where we got our education, Lester Williams said, Alan, you have no idea what colorectal surgery is. And so I ended up going up to Leahy Clinic. And when I got there, um, two funny stories. The first one was I got our M&M list for the first week and we had 15 leaks that we were presenting in M&M. And I thought, dear God, wow. what? I, this is awful. I don't unpack the boxes. I, I want to go somewhere else. This is terrible. And then all of a sudden you realize you're doing eight to 15 anastomosis every single day. And that statistically you're going to hit months where it happens like that. Um, so that, that was my introduction was like, holy cow, this is a whole nother level of education going on here. For, for me, it was. And it wasn't that I didn't have, a, I had a really good, strong background in my general surgery. It was just, this was this was different. When I got there though, they had sheets that basically that was their post-op orders. And I realized right away, this is absolutely a protocol. That This is much like from an engineering standpoint, they are doing things the same way every time on these patients. And so we, the other fellow I was with, a guy named Matt Much, who runs a colorectal program at Wash U um, in St. Louis, um, so we started adding to that and started looking at other things we could um, that we could do to make that even more efficient. So that's really where that started kicking in. And then when I got back um, to Vanderbilt, then I realized all of a sudden it became obvious because we had these really smart residents. And I realized, wow, they are doing things really different than I would want them done. And it's because I hadn't shown them this is this is the protocol these patients need to be on. They don't need to be on anything else. They don't need a lot of extra fluid. They don't need extra labs. They really can streamline what we're taking care of here. We've talked a lot about standardization on this program. Um, before we get in further into what you've been doing with regards to the standardization and protocols, I just want to hear, and I, I think everybody else wants to hear, what was HF like as a senior resident? How did he treat his interns and medical students? I, so first of all, uh, HF um, taught, treated everybody really well. It, it, it actually just uh, is the honest truth. And, Not yeah. um, and I will say in general, and HF, we can bounce it back and forth. There were a few people that were just SOBs to folks. Um, within the surgery program, but for the most part, I think most everybody really tried to watch out for each other from a personal standpoint. I I can certainly remember um, one time one of my kids got sick and and it wasn't even a, a, it wasn't even like a thought process. Whoever the chief was on that service was like, go take care of that. I got this. And you know, as a second year or even a third year, you're thinking, 
well, listen, I do an awful lot here. I don't know if you can. And, and of course, then you realize as you get older, they're like, really, I can take care of this with my eyes closed. You go, you know, take care of a child. So really, he was fantastic to work with. One HF was unique in our program and really applauded there by John Tarpley um, for years afterwards because HF was the consummate general surgeon is what he went out to do. Where a lot of folks like me that aren't as skilled and aren't as smart as HF, I had to pick one slice of the pie and learn that. HF was able to learn everything and, and do everything. I just oh, well, want to how much he's paying you, to be honest. <laughs> well, well, thanks a lot, Alan. Yeah, and, and I, 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 I sent my Zell number a little bit ago, and so he said we were quite even up at the end. And, and I agree. I mean, you know, for a while there, Vanderbilt had had a reputation for being sort of a malignant type uh, program, but it really wasn't. It, I, I really think it was a gentleman's program. We worked hard and, and there was a, a lot that was expected of us. But 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 as far as is being abused, I don't I, don't, I never felt, you know, that you, you did. Like you said, there was there was an, a, jerk, a jerk here or there. But for the most part, it, it, it was a good program. Yeah, it was, sure was. The, hard part, the hard part, I think, was because I, like you, HF, was on every other night call for four of my years. And then your fifth clinical year, I was on basically you covered every night if you were in town as a chief. So that was not would not be acceptable today. And I don't know if that was really acceptable in retrospect. Um, but we but in terms of why you were there, I think people really tried to make sure you were doing OK. Sure, sure. You know, when getting back to the standardization part, you know, we we talk about standardization and we talk about decreasing variation among care and, and how that increases our quality. But why is it so hard for us surgeons to to accept that and to and to um, to accept standardization? And, and tell me about some of the obstacles that you've had to overcome when you're trying to uh, to implement standardization. Absolutely. I think it's because so many people feel like each little piece they do is essential. And so while they're very data driven in a 30,000 foot view from a very um, rubber meets the road view, they are not necessarily data driven. They're more anecdotally driven. So they remember that patient. They didn't put a drain in. They got an abscess and went down to CT and then they got an IR drain and then it bled. And, and so they're like, by God, I'm leaving the drain every time as opposed to saying, if we standardize and we decrease our variability, one, our quality goes up immediately. And as an informatics person, Jake, you may be able to identify exactly what that process is called, why that occurs. But as soon as you decrease variability, quality almost always goes up. But the second thing that happens is you can then identify your patients that aren't doing well because you've decreased the variability in their care. As opposed to if you keep adding more data points at which things can change, well, now you don't have a way to identify whether the patient's off the path because of one of the other changes you made or whether the patient's truly off the path. So I think surgeons have a really tough time because in the micro version of what they do, they are very anecdotally driven. And it's very hard not to be. It's hard to, you know, it's really hard when every time you do an anastomosis and then um, you have a leak or you have a poor outcome, you're thinking, man, what did I, how can I do that different? Or, oh, this time I use this. The staplers are the one that, you know, religion, politics, and then staplers are right up there together. And it doesn't matter how many times you tell folks, hey, the stapler, I, the staplers is not the issue here. 
I understand you had to bleed and you've never had a bleed in your life. Well, actually, that's probably not true, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 So I think that's what it is. I think people get focused on the micro and they care passionately about their patients. And so it's harder for them to see a bigger picture. Yeah, I think the, the patient story and the, the anecdote sway people a lot more than the data. <laughs> and that's true for in medicine. It's true, you know, in, in every aspect of our lives, people seem to be, you know, even, you know, with regards to vaccines, they're, they're more they're more swayed by a, a personal anecdote of a friend than, than the data on, you know, that we try to give them. So it's 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 a big hurdle to overcome. Um, one of the things I noticed when I for preparing with this is that you do a lot with the ERAS protocol. We talked yeah. a little bit about ERAS uh, so far on this podcast, but I wanted you to go into a little bit more detail about what it Absolutely. is and how it's changing surgery and any obstacles you've had with implementing it. Certainly. So the um, the ERAS is the enhanced recovery after surgery protocols. They can be applied to any kind of procedure. I think they probably were most or earliest applied to colorectal, and I think probably orthopedic, the number of orthopedic procedures weren't very far behind that. And it is the thought process and idea that your patient can progress through their recovery um, more quickly and with higher quality and with less complications by absolutely standardizing every part of that puzzle. So if you think about it before, you had an anesthesiologist who was deciding how they would give the anesthesia when they met the patient that morning. And certainly there's different patients with different illnesses and therefore they should get different anesthesia. But every morning, a different anesthesiologist was choosing how those patients would get care. In addition to that, you had the problem with um, the problem with local pain control that the patient would have and the variety of different ways that would occur, whether it was with a PCA or IV narcotics, um, bolus, or whether it was oral. And, um, and then you had the fluid control piece. Well, the fluid control piece um, was that each anesthesiologist was also given a different amount of fluid, oftentimes influenced by how they gave their anesthesia. And since their anesthesia changed each time, the amount of fluid they got it changed each time. And then finally, you had the ability to start oral um, intake for patients. Well, one of the first things I had learned when I went to my fellowship was that there was no reason to hold oral intake. Patients don't do well starving. If they're able to actually take in um, clear liquids of any kind, it helps stabilize their glucose as opposed to swinging wildly. And um, so, so all those are the components of the ERAS. The part that is that can drive it really well is once you get your anesthesia buy-in, the rest of it, I think, starts to be really downhill. And the anesthesia buy-in is simply, we want you doing the anesthesia the same way every time. We can dabble over how you want to do it, whether you want to do TIVA, which I believe very strongly for colon cases is so much better. It's, I think the cancer data, I'm not sure I, I buy all the cancer data about TIVA being better for cancer, but it's definitely better for patient recovery. Um, so total IV anesthesia, tap blocks, which is a big part of what we do. Um, at, at Vanderbilt, we used to do them in the pre-op holding area because of some flow um, reasons. We do them now after the patient's asleep here. Um, but uh, that transabdominal preperitoneal block goes a long ways. We have 30% of our patients that never take a narcotic um, after colon surgery. And then when they wake up, immediately starting them on um starting them on PO. So those, those are the biggest components. The p- place where I've had the biggest, that I feel like we've run into the biggest um, 
hurdles, um, Jake, has been really on the um, anesthesia part and getting them to um, getting them to buy in that it, what they do really makes a difference to what we do. Um, and then with that has been some of the clear sight technology that has come along where they can look at fluid management and goal directed fluid management as opposed to ah, we're doing a colon case today, so we better put an A-line in and this patient's going to need two liters of fluid. And when you ask them about why that is, they're like, oh, they'll be dehydrated from the prep. And then you're like, wait a second. They finished their prep last night and they took in 16 ounces of Gatorade three hours ago. I, I don't, we're not dehydrated, you know. Sure. So those have been, I, I, yeah. wandered, I may have wandered too much there, Jake, but those have been. No, no, no. And, and so it, it sounds like, you know, this, this, the program really needs a surgeon champion, but uh, a lot of the changes are in the anesthesiology realm. Um, absolutely. So you have to partner. You have to partner with your anesthesia colleagues. Absolutely. Sure. You, you really do. Um, and, you, and partner from a very high level, meaning I, I, it, it's not that I don't respect Dr. Smith a lot, but I really don't care how he or she wants to give anesthesia. I, I, I want it to be done by the protocol. As long as it's done by protocol, I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> but but if they're and going so, to go off protocol, there better be a, a reason. So what are your strategies for convincing a reluctant anesthesiologist uh, to get on board with the program? Um, sure. I think that I think the biggest part and this sometimes is my strength and sometimes my weakness. <laughs> both. Um, I think the biggest part is saying to them, let's look at it from a data standpoint. If we're giving different care to each patient it's really hard to identify why patients may or may not do well after their surgery. If we can standardize the starting spot, which is y'all, then we can make an impact. And I promise you, we will keep the patient on certain protocols afterwards so that we can see how your anesthesia makes a difference. And then I think once they start to realize things like when you give more IV fluid, your leak rates start to go up. When you get more IV fluid, generally patients need more pain medicine. Um, all of those, when you start to do all of those kind of things, um, most of the time I, you can get folks to to really start to buy in. I think sometimes you still have some resistance. We still have people with resistance to the TIVA or non-narcotic anesthesia. Um, that really makes them anxious. Uh, I mean, you know, certainly when HF and I were training, if you did cardiac surgery, you just gave a giant bolus of morphine at the beginning of the case. Sure. And um, so, so there's been an evolution there, but but once you can get them to see what an impact it makes to the patient post-op, and then I advertise it. I'm like, hey, you realize when y'all do those tap blocks, 30% of the time, the patients don't even need a narcotic. Boy, everybody ought to be, like I said, we're a mixed community here, mixed community of employed and community surgeons. And so I'll be like, I, I will share with the anesthesiologist how many of our patients don't need narcotics post-op, because then I know they'll have, we still have some surgeons that won't do tap blocks. And then I know that conversation starts to happen where they're like, hey, did you know that 30 percent of the patients that get a tap block don't need narcotics afterwards? And so it starts to um, it starts to lead to a domino effect of, of you know, moving in the right direction. Yeah, we we uh, we we have ERAS protocols here and, and we do fairly well with them as far as utilization. We, we, we've got a we've got a, a good ways to go. But but it is I mean, it's amazing when I was practicing in New Albany. You know, my de denominator was pretty small, but I had a lot of patients who you'd do a left hemicolectomy on 
and they would absolutely go home not taking any narcotics. Yeah. I mean, they may be taking Tylenol or or a non-steroidal, and and just even seeing them on post-op day one, uh, you know, they don't have that foggy, groggy look. You, you know what I'm talking yeah, about? It's, it's very different. Uh, they're sitting in a they're sitting up in a chair and they look great, and you know they're sitting there, you know, drinking clear liquids. It's 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 a great thing, but yeah, I, I like the way you talk about um, standardization in that. I mean, you can't improve unless you have a standard. And, and, right. and, and, you know, if you're trying to, if you have a gap in whatever it is in a process, I mean, the first question that you have to ask is, I mean, is there a standard? Because yeah. if there, if there's not, that's the first thing you need to work on. Well, let, let's, 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 uh, you know, try to stabilize this process and get a standard. That, that's exactly right. I, I, from certainly from an engineering standpoint, uh, if you don't have a standard, then, then there's really not a question to ask. Maybe you're, you're, from my perspective, you're stuck. You know, if everybody's doing a little bit different and everybody feels like they're doing it well, then you've got to just try to find a least common denominator that everybody can agree on and just start to build from that spot. Yeah, go ahead, Jack. Well, I was just going to ask. So you mentioned that uh, Memorial has a, you know, kind of an even mix of employed versus independent physicians or community physicians. Um, and, you know, sometimes it, it's difficult to getting alignment with certain initiatives like ERAS or any other protocols. How do you go about getting, you know, those two different groups to agree and move forward with an initiative? So first of all, I certainly can't take credit for much of any of that environment that's been built here. They've done a fantastic job of building the culture. And interestingly, it's different at each hospital. So it's it, each of the five hospitals have their own unique culture in it. But the administration that's been here for a while has done a really good job of building that trust with the community physicians. Um, and then with that, they really start to say, okay, here's, here's the protocols we're going to follow. Um, and the, like in the NIST clip, that, that's one of the easy ones to talk about. So very simple discussion when I got here about that had to do just with the antibiotics and timing of antibiotics. So first we went through, are we given appropriate antibiotics? About 30% of our cases weren't getting appropriate antibiotics. So literally 30% of our cases, we don't even have a chance of meeting what we want to do as the standard. And so we just started sharing that. Um, then we started sharing oral preps and oral antibiotics. So each time a physician, either one, employed or non-employed, does a case, colon case, and they haven't, they haven't given the pre-op oral and um, antibiotics pre-op prep. They just get a nice note back saying, "Hey, did you know that, that here's the data? It makes a real difference in how your patients do." And we have transitioned now to where we probably have 95 plus percent compliance um, with those kind of standards. So, it, so it's really just, um, I think, not so much trying to look at it as two different groups as much as saying, here's how we as a hospital want to take care of these patients because it's the best way to take care of them. And then giving that feedback. I want to talk a little bit about, um, you know, education. And and one of the, I've mentioned this before on the, on the podcast, one of the things, one of the common threads among the guests we have on here, especially our physicians and a lot of our non-physicians is, most of them or a lot of them have a background in some type of engineering. And of course, you know, you, you, you got your degree in biomedical engineering. And, and I think, you know, in engineering, you're, you're 
thinking about processes and you're thinking about systems and systems thinking, how, you, you know, we, di- we didn't, I didn't get any of that at all in any of my medical education or my residency. And do you think that, that this should be implemented or integrated into either medical school or residency or, or things like that? I, I think it is in a lot of ways. You certainly have had a number of people on the podcast. Um, you had the gentleman at Florida that actually teaches the class to medical students. I'm sorry for blanking his name. Yeah, um, that's H- right. Yeah. That, that reminds me, um, Jake, I like the way HF does it when y'all have really good guests on as opposed to me, where they're like, hey, listen, I look, here's HF's line. I looked at the cover of your book and it looks really interesting. <laughs> so I'd like to ask a couple questions. Uh-huh. <laughs> Uh, he, he has done that. He reads the back, uh, the back cover, the you know, the synopsis. What was, what was? I read several pages of the book, and I wanted to ask you. <laughs> yeah, Can you summarize yeah, I read the, rest? the first and the last the page. notes. To be fair, a few yeah. of those Skip would give us the book like the day before. No, so. I. <laughs> in all seriousness, though, I I agree. I think teaching the students. First of all, I think the way that our um, the way that our uh, medical education is done now, they are already getting some of that by the way they study process-based as opposed to more like where ours was anatomical-based and then clinical-based. They they get their education in a much more integrated fashion. The other thing, just what you just asked about, since there are more and more protocols being brought on, they are indirectly being exposed to that. And two of the ones that I think are two of the more interesting studies is they both ran at Vanderbilt, but was looking at um, PTT control and IV heparin drugs. And so they ran a study. They randomized patients to either we're going to be on this protocol. The patient will get shifted based on that. We are going to then allow the other group to be managed by the physicians and the residents. And based on that, we will look to see at how many times they overshoot, how long, how many changes it takes to get the PTT stabilized, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. And it wasn't even close. It wasn't even close to where when within Vanderbilt, they put that out there. You couldn't put a patient on heparin and not have them on the protocol. You just weren't allowed to. And there was a big book of data for being able to say um, why that was. So I think having protocols like that can make a difference and make a difference in terms of your utilization of resources. The other one that I was familiar with was, um, oh, coming in to do ultrasounds for lower extremity DVTs and HF this was right as I got back so this is right after you left so the the radiology department basically said all right we're looking at the number of DVTs you're being you're asking us to come do ultrasounds for and our positive finding rate is miserable it is low so basically they said we're going to look at the next 500 patients or whatever and after that we don't come in in the middle of the night anymore when they did the study because the data just showed one it's not going to make an impact on the patient at that point you can give them lovinox and then we can do the study in the morning and and two you've already shown us based on your clinical findings we're not going to find a dvt now that was all for the jake i'm so sorry that was all for the medicine residents the surgical <laughs> residents they would still come in and they would do lower extremity ultrasounds but we have an easier thing i mean again yeah. we get called to say hey their foot's cold and they don't have a pulse huh an ultrasound may benefit us, you know, sure. It, it's sure. it, again, as opposed to where you're coming in and a patient's sick and they're in heart failure and tachycardic and their lower extremities happen to be swollen, which would be one of a thousand reasons. So, right. no, yeah, the, the protocols that we're exposed to certainly have 
have increased, especially with the electronic health record. You know, a lot of you know, some of my professors were worried that we'd become too reliant on some of the order sets and things that we would forget how to treat a certain disease or something like that. But um, it certainly has made patient care safer for a lot of those conditions. I'm thinking of, you know, something like ketoacidosis, where it was, you know, you have a very structured protocol in place and having to come up with each of those steps independently versus having that right in front of you that you could easily uh, uh, follow is, right. you know, it's, it's been a game changer. No, absolutely. Uh, Jake, ha when Alan and I were residents, ha half of your mental energy was remembering which attend how each different attending liked different things for instance you know this attending he liked to go from clear liquid straight to a regular diet this one liked to go clear liquids full liquids regular diet this one liked the IV fluids at 100 uh -huh. cc's how about an the, hour how about the peat surgery out half strength at full rate or yes. full strength at half rate <laughs> yeah no, i mean it, it was still true when i was a resident though um you know we would have cardiology attending switch midway through our service and you know it was your job as the resident and the fellow that was with you to know, okay, we actually need to change this patient from this medicine to this one and do this and that because we got a new attendant coming on and that's the way he likes it. Yeah, and, and trying to remember how you held the needle holder. Some, some attendings wanted you to put your fingers in the ring. Some wanted you to palm it. I mean, it was it was just yeah. crazy. You got to manage yeah. your attending. Oh, yeah, and, and one more thing, central lines. I mean, some, some attendings wanted a new stick central line every three days. Some wanted a new central line changed over a wire every three days. It was, I it think was crazy. Central lines are a great area, Jake. And I'm sure y'all see this in your hospitals where standardization has made such an impact, such an impact that you know, HF. Can you imagine if somebody told us we need to use an ultrasound to put in central line? Our first reaction would have been, "What are you talking about?" You know, I, I don't need a, that. And then when you look at the data of how ultrasound guided central lines and the morbidity, uh, I wouldn't. I don't put in central lines, but I wouldn't begin to think about somebody putting in a central line without using that's a great example. And then I, I think going back to your other question, one thing we have um, right before I left Vanderbilt, we'd started up where the anesthesiology and the residents would do pain rounds on our patients. And our surgery residents resisted it so much initially because they felt like some, something was being taken from them. And all of a sudden, when we're like, wait a second, do you realize the patient now has you seeing them, me seeing them, our nurse practitioners are going to see them at some point and make sure they're on the protocols, then an anesthesiology resident's going to see them and an anesthesia attending's going to see them. If you're that patient laying in the bed by one o'clock that day, you feel like, holy cow, these people really care about me and how I'm doing. And so when they started to get the messaging like that, it started making it started making a big difference in buying into all, a lot of the rest of the protocols and things we were doing. Sure. Well, Alan, we're coming up on our 30-minute uh, mark, and um, it was so good to, to talk with you, and uh, I'm glad you're doing good down in South Florida. And uh, just once again, thank you so much for being on the, on the podcast. It really has been a pleasure, HF. It really has. And Jake, thanks so much for having me and anytime if I can do anything come down to Mississippi I, I um, love to make the trip